little story from last night. A good friend of mine texts me and asks me, how's, how's your sermon going? And I said, okay, and then I started to give him some negative this and that. He's a young guy that he uh, worries a bit. So I bet you between 20 and 100 times I've sent him Philippians 4, 6. He threw that right back in my face. And it helped. I mean, we are to be doers of the word, not just hearers. So um, I got away from anxious and got into prayer, and it helped. Quick review. Last week, Matthew 5, 1-12, we learned that Jesus was teaching his disciples the Beatitudes are something to be and not something to do to earn heaven. The first part of each beatitude describes a characteristic of a disciple of Jesus, and the second part is the reward or blessing that the disciple of Christ receives. Today, as we continue in Matthew 5, we need to remember that Jesus is still teaching his disciples. Sure, there were others there listening, but in Jesus' audience uh, was his disciples. The question is, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? If you know him as your Lord and Savior and have your trust in him, then yes, you are. And these words that Jesus is speaking are teaching you. Today we're going to look at Matthew 5, 13 to 30. Last week we ended in 12. I mean, we're a, part, a week away from 12 and 13. Jesus was seconds away from verse 12 and 13. So it's the same sermon, the same speech. In the Pew Bibles, it's page 810, Matthew 5, verses 13 to 30. Pew Bibles in front of you, page 810. Okay, Matthew 5, starting with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court 
lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If, you, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body going to hell. This is the word of God. Quick review of last week. We already did that. Verse 13. (laughs) Okay. Verse 13, starting right there. You are the salt of the earth. Remember, this is a continuation from verses 1 to 12. Jesus tells his disciples, you are, not try to become. He's telling them, you're the salt of the earth. It's not something you got to do. You are. Salt is a preservative. Salt is a flavor enhancer. Salt creates thirst. Salt is a symbol of permanence. Let's look at the permanence of salt. Judges 9.45 says, And Abimelech fought against the city all the day, and he captured the city and killed the people who were in it. And he raised the city and sowed it with salt. This was symbolism. It wasn't he put an inch of salt over acres and acres of land so they can't plant food. It was symbolism of a permanence that this city is destroyed and belongs to Israel. And it's also a measure of anger and hatred. Numbers 18, verse 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. The Lord's covenant with Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. Notice, perpetual and forever in the salt covenant. Again, in Second Chronicles 13.5, Ought you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over to Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? A covenant of salt is forever. Continue in verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt doesn't lose its taste or its savoriness unless it's contaminated. Jesus wants us to remain savory to God, not contaminated with sin. Our aim is to please Jesus, and the byproduct is the world. Our actions matter. Our words matter. First Peter 2.9 says that you may proclaim the excellence of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Make Jesus known. Consciously live as the blessed people we are in Christ. Not fearful, not angry, not grim, but blessed. Life can be miserable, but I am blessed in Christ. Hebrews says without faith it is impossible to please him. Faith is believing all that God has said and living our lives accordingly. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. Again, Jesus says, you are, we are. Not try to be. Continue, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Proverbs 4, 18 says, but the path of the just is 
is like a shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The just are the saved. Shining light. John 8.12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Exodus 3.6, God says to Moses, I am the God of your father. We sometimes miss the significance of Jesus saying, I am. The Pharisees didn't. Jesus was declaring he was God the Son. John 5.58 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I want you to read, I want to read the I am statements in John where he's declaring to be God. I am the bread of life, John 6.35. I am the light of the world, 8.12. I am the door to the sheep, 10.7. I am the resurrection and the life, 11.25. I am the good shepherd, 10.11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, 14.6. I am the true vine, verse 15.1. We are a light to the world because we are disciples of Jesus. Verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it, sh it gives light to all the house. We should not hide the light of Jesus in us. The world should see our light and know we belong to Jesus. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Well, back in Ephesians, or up to Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If we put those two verses together, we are given good works to do, we should do our assigned work in such a way that the world can see we belong to Jesus and they glorify God. How we act matters. I got saved. I told you in Sunday school that I would tell you uh, how I got saved. I got saved by watching Christians, seeing they were different. The Sunday school question was, reflect when you realize you that salvation was purely a gift of God's grace apart from works. I could see that my sister and brother-in-law were saved. I didn't know how to get there, and I knew I was bad, and I knew they weren't perfect. But I also knew that I could get what they got. So the other part is, how did I respond? Well, at 51 years old, because I'm a tad slow, I decided to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And looking back on it, I don't think I had a lot to do with it. Uh, it just kind of happened. And if you go through the tulip, uh, it says that. Uh, okay. How we act matters. I got saved, blah, blah, They didn't. Uh-huh. Jesus, shine his light on me through their actions, my sister and brother-in-law's actions. As First Peter 2.9 says, I was called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's move on to the law. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We are not to think Jesus' teachings was meant to alter or replace the moral content of the Old Testament law. 
He isn't giving a new law or modifying an old law, but explaining the true significance of the moral content of the law of Moses and the rest of the Old Testament. Here Jesus declares himself higher than Moses. Fulfillment is the same sense of prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus says he is the fulfillment of the law in all aspects. Fulfilled the moral law by keeping it perfectly. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. Every year for atonement of our sins, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Doesn't mean we don't have to obey the moral law, but Jesus covered us through the moral law. He fulfilled the ceremonial law by being everything the law symbolized, pointing, pointed to. So what the law pointed to, Jesus fulfilled. For instance, the easiest one to look at is the peace offering, Leviticus 3. They offered, the offering was to have the worshiper have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Very clear that Jesus fulfilled the peace. We have that through Christ. It's fulfilled. We don't need to do that offering over and over again. Jesus also fulfilled the judicial law by personifying God's perfect justice. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Iota and dot is a reference to very small Hebrew letters. The meaning is not one very small part of the law is going to pass away. The Old Testament is authoritative until the kingdom comes. We hear people say the Bible is out of date, mostly because they want to live in the sin that they're practicing. Let's see what God's Word says. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. A New Testament writer does not dismiss the Old Testament as outdated. Paul does not say unless the people become woke or smarter than the Bible. Again, in Matthew 24.35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The Old Testament is the word of God or Jesus' word. Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away. This is not a statement like when pigs fly or never. The Bible tells us about it. The law will be completely fulfilled if we look at Second Peter verses 10 and 13. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up, and will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. To be clear, the heavens here is talking about sky, stars, and moon. It's not talking about the dwelling of God. Verse 13, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The law is showing people that they cannot perfectly follow the law and enter heaven. Once righteousness dwells at the second coming of Christ, the law won't be needed. Remember Jesus said, until heaven and earth pass away and until all is accomplished, we have the law. We still can't enter the kingdom of heaven without a righteous standard. Our righteous standard is knowing and trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I'm going to read from Romans 10, the first four verses. 
says, Brothers, my heart's desire prayer to God is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Paul is talking about Jews that still wanted to follow the law to get saved. He's saying they're making a grave mistake, that they need the righteousness of God. Continuing in Romans 10, I'm going to start in verse 8. The word is near to your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul gives them the way to be saved and tells them they're righteous. They can't have righteousness through the law. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What is going on here? This should perk up some ears. Teachers, who are teachers? Standing up here at the pulpit. Sunday school teachers, homeschool teachers, public school teachers, youth group teachers, parents, and I'm sure I missed a whole bunch of people. I can look around and I can see lots of you that have three or four of those titles. So we have to be careful. Relax the commands and teach, least in the kingdom of heaven. Does the commands and teach equals great in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, both groups are going to heaven. Apparently, there's a hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven. It's not hard to find examples of positions in heaven. Jesus told his apostles, it's not up to me who sits on my right hand and left. Places of honor. So there is place of honor sitting on Jesus' right hand and left hand. We all hope to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm not sure we're all going to hear that. In Revelation 4, in the throne room, there's 24 thrones for 24 elders. These are positions of honor. I don't know who these guys are, uh, but I know they're there. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 and 14 says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on a foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but one is through fire. This shows that on the day, judgment day, some will enter heaven and receive rewards. And I picture the other end of the spectrum that some people will be coming into heaven putting out small fires and maybe smoldering a little bit with a grin on their face and just happy to be there. Our entrance into heaven is apart from our works. We go to heaven because of Jesus Christ and his work. While our rewards and positions of honor in the kingdom of heaven are related to our works, our days on earth matter. Verse 20, For I tell you, 
unless the righteous unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This was like setting off a bomb. The statement sounded like nobody can get to heaven. We have the a different view of the Pharisees with our 2020 hindsight. These people looked at the Pharisees as lawgivers, law keepers, and holy pious men. Jesus was saying the Pharisees' law keeping fell way short and were outside the kingdom of heaven. Jesus was revealing the standard it takes to enter heaven. Matthew 5:48 says, "You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." Must be. So now we have to be more righteous than the Pharisees and perfect. Sounds impossible. That's the whole idea, that it is impossible in our own strength to reach the righteous standard of God. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by His, by him from the wrath of God. Nothing like hearing a but God. We have an unsolvable problem, but God handles it. It says we are justified. Lawson explained that really well. I'll explain it again. Justified means we're declared not guilty. In the eyes of God, we are not guilty. We belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, we're justified by Jesus' blood declared innocent in the eyes of God because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Now all that trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior are perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. We are granted Jesus' righteousness. Verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Exodus 20.13 and Deuteronomy 5.17 both say, You shall not murder. Old Testament judgment and punishment on murder, Numbers 35, starting with verse 16, says, But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that caused death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool and could cause death and he died, He's a murderer, and the murderer shall be put to death. And it goes on and on. The death penalty is biblical. It doesn't say parole and, you know, get them all straightened out and then let them back out. In the Bible, it said the death penalty, penalty is judgment on a murderer. If you don't like it, take it up with God. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. When Jesus says, but I say to you, he is correcting their perception of the law. He's not changing the law. He puts himself above Moses, the lawgiver, and speaks with authority. We are in a dangerous position when we are angry or hate. Actual murders usually start with anger or hatred. Anger usually comes out, out as insults, passive aggression, or silent treatment. And Facebook is not a license to lash out at people. According to Jesus, righteousness 
According to Jesus' righteousness, the punishable offense is not only murder, but the anger that propels insults, violence, and murder. When Judas came with a mob to portray Jesus, Jesus said to him, Do what you've come for, friend. Jesus called Judas friend. Verse 23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, the gift at the altar was two birds for cleansing. One was killed and one was set free. If, okay, uh, gift that Moses commanded for proof. Verse 24, leave your gift if you remember that your brother has something against you. Therefore, before the altar and go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Last week we spent time with the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Verses 23 and 24 are talking about peacemaking. Jesus is commanding us to be peacemakers with our brothers. What if it's partly his fault? Take care of it. Verse 25 and 26, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus calls for reconciliation to be sought eagerly and quickly. Even if it involves self-sacrifice, it is better to be wronged than to allow a dispute to be a cause of dishonoring Jesus Christ. Verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Jesus was quoting from the Ten Commandments, given to Moses in Exodus 20, verse 14, and again in Deuteronomy uh, 5.18, verse 28 says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It puts quite a different view on adultery. If people don't read the Bible and you ask them, you know, have you ever committed adultery? Most people, nah, not me, not me. You read this to them, I mean, there's, there's a lot of adulterers sitting in this building. I, again, Jesus says, I say to you, he is claiming his authority above Moses. He is not changing the law. He is correcting their perception of the law. Remember, back in verses 17, where Jesus says, I do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Not only did he not abolish the law of murder and adultery, his definition of murder and adultery made the law stricter and complete. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus is telling us to deal radically with sin. The eye feeds the imagination. We should not be watching movies or online stuff, sexual contact, nudity, or anything else that gets your imagination into a sinful place. A lot of sin comes from our phones. Radical with the phone? Cut off the data. Only have talk and text. Radical with the phone? Uh, put covenant eyes on your phone where some things are shut out and the things that aren't shut out, your accountability partner gets to see exactly what you were looking at. Um, I told you a lot of do's. 
A lot of do nots. Let me give you some do's, and there's a one do not in here. Philippians 4, 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If we keep our minds on things above, if we keep our minds on good things, how is hatred and murder and adultery going to sneak in? We should be careful of what we put in our mind and let's stay in our mind. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Again, we are to deal radically with sin. The best way to deal with sin is to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. How can you do that? One, acknowledge you are a sinner and need a Savior. Two, believe. Believe Jesus is the Son of God. Believe Jesus died for your sins. Believe after three days he rose from the dead. Believe he is capable of saving you. Third, confess your sins and turn from them. And fourth, confess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and ask him into your life.